Hey everyone, today I'm going to talk about Stuart Hall's encoding and decoding in the television discourse, which is a pretty important text in the domain of media studies, English, uh, any one of those fields. And yeah, so before jumping into it, if you want to follow me anywhere other than here, you can find me on Instagram at theory underscore and underscore philosophy or on Twitter at David Guineo. If you're new here, welcome, welcome, welcome. I'm David. I try to explain philosophical texts and ideas in a way that makes them accessible to you. So, if you're new, like, share, subscribe, tell your friends, who knows, they might get a kick out of it, comment, I'd love to hear from you. If you found this on YouTube, you'll be able to find it pretty much anywhere where you get podcasts where there shouldn't be any ads, or if you found this on some podcast platform, you can also find me on YouTube where sometimes I release videos. Yeah, if you want to help me out, obviously like, share, subscribe, that helps me out a lot. Uh, if you're listening to this on Apple Podcasts, leave however many stars you think I deserve, leave a review. I read them all, I don't have the time to respond to all your reviews and comments, but uh, I love reading them. And finally, if you want to help me out monetarily, you can do that via Patreon or PayPal, but obviously no pressure. So yeah, don't want to waste any more of your time. Let's jump into this pretty seminal essay, the encoding-decoding essay, which I know many first-year media studies students or second-year media studies students struggle with, so hopefully I'll be able to clarify anything that might be confusing about this idea. So there are two versions of this text, I think. I'm doing the original. There's another one that was written more to be a written essay. This is from his talk, uh, a paper he gave at the Council of Europe, of Europe Colloquy, Colloquy, Colloquy. Anyways, on training in the critical reading of, of television. But the big ideas, you know, even though this isn't the written one, are all the same. So you, you'll be fine. So this text for Hall was a, a way by which he could bridge the often separated projects of a formal analysis of a text and an, or, you know, the other approach is to look at the sociocultural context in which a text emerges. And that shapes a text. So either, to put it more simply, either people were just reading a text and separating it from the socio-historical context, or people were determining the text by looking at the socio-historical context and saying like, oh, of course this text emerged because X, Y, and Z was going on, or this film emerged, or this television show emerged because X, Y, and Z was going on, and that motivated this kind of thing to develop. Now, what he wants to do is consider almost the ways in which there are avid interests behind the formation of certain texts, behind the formation of certain television programs, and all and all that. So this text is a way to consider the extent to which no text, like film, television, book, whatever, no text is really neutral in terms of the the image it presents, like in the television image, the what we see on the TV. It's not neutral. It works in the interests of what he calls the production elites in broadcasting. And so there is a kind of communication occurring between production elites in broadcasting, people who hold the reins of the production of certain images. There is a communication between them and the consumers. And the way that they are communicating is through this image, through the television that is conveying to the people that are that is consuming it a message, conveying to them an image that they then receive and interpret and so the producers encode a message they encode an idea that then the consumers decode and he uses this language of encoder and decoder and i should say he's not the first to have written about this 
there's Baudrillard wrote about this as well. And before him, Roman Jacobson, I think was his name, wrote about this. And in many cases, Hall just kind of picked up from what they wrote about, but that's neither here nor there. But he uses these terms encoding and decoding because he finds them to be more appropriate than just saying producers and consumers. Because for him, that connotes or it that gives the idea that it's kind of a neutral thing going on, that producers just make something and consumers just consume something. Whereas what he's saying is that by encoding something, there is a kind of intent that something is being made for a specific purpose to be interpreted in a specific way. And by decoding, he's saying that maybe not all the time is that message going to be understood and decoded in the ways that it was intended to be decoded. Whereas just with producers and consumers, you have someone making something that someone else then consumes. It seems as though there's nothing lost there. There's nothing lost in translation. Whereas with encoding and decoding, it's almost like a game of broken telephone where a message is said that is kind of packaged up and then whether or not the person on the other end is going to interpret it the right way is like, who knows? Who knows what's going to happen here in that process? Now, when it comes to the television, in order for something to be transmitted, it needs to abide by certain codes. Not anything can be transmitted through the television. And so, for example, uh, if you're watching TV, even to this day, like if you go on Netflix, for the most part, the kind of English you're going to hear on Netflix shows is a pretty standard dialect of English, like uh, probably East Coast American or Canadian that doesn't sound like it's from anywhere totally specific. So you probably won't hear someone speaking Ebonics or someone with a maybe a Southern accent that much. So there are these kind of subtle codes that television producers need to abide by in order to reach the audience in the broadest way possible. But of course, there's nothing more neutral about one way of talking over others. It is just the dominant way of talking. Now, that's just one way to look at it. And I like to think about it in that way to kind of get our get my foot in the door to understand what he means by saying that you have to abide by certain kind of codes and regulations before you can even enter the TV. But take, for example, the news. In order for an event to be presented on the news, it has to be turned into a story because you never listen to the news and then it just, you know, they just say at like facts, people reading off facts. They present a kind of narrative. And although they try in news media, they try to uh, kind of hide the fact that they are telling a narrative. They, you know, they like to say they're just being objective. They're just telling the facts. They are in fact telling a narrative. You never actually hear anyone on the news saying this happened, this happened, and this happened, and that's it. They always attach some kind of value to it, even though it's very difficult at times to necessarily see. It is easier to see if you happen to be, for example, a racialized person or a person of color who sees themselves constantly being erased by news media or constantly being demonized by news media to which the perhaps the white listener might not be aware of because they are not the ones being erased or demonized in the narrative that is being presented. So in Hall's words, he says that the event must become a story before it can become a communicative event, before it can be transmitted on the television. Now, there's a process that is followed for an event to become a story. 
or to become a message that can then be interpreted or decoded. And it goes like this. First, you have knowledge and use concerning the routines of production, like how, what are the actual uh, physical limits in the how this story can be told. Then there's the technical skills that will also determine how it will be told. Professional ideologies, you know, you have various people working in a newsroom who have vested interests, perhaps, in how they want the message to be relayed. You have institutional knowledge. You have definitions and assumptions, assumptions about the audience, etc., etc., etc. You have all these things motivating how the story will be formed. And so, in a sense, the audience is present before they actually receive the message because the producers have the audience in mind. Now, this is a very specific audience. They are seeking to only, for the most part, that is, to represent the dominant audience. So in that way, the audience is present before they actually absorb the image or absorb the message because the, the producers are saying, how do we make the audience happy? What are they going to want? And so production and consumption here, producers and consumers, are therefore related in this process. They are differentiated moments within the totality formed by the communicative process as a whole. So they do work for each other to some extent, where producers want to make the audience happy, who then consume the images that or, or messages that then makes the producers happy. Now, there's a kind of visual dimension here that is in the essay where he sketches out how this looks. And of course, I can't really do that because uh, I'm, I have a podcast, but I'll try to describe it in as clear a way as I can. So in order to make a message, you have frameworks of knowledge, structure of production, technical infrastructure that encode and determine how a message is going to be packaged. And then you have the programming, like you have the television uh, source, like you have the, the news channel, the 6 p.m. news, whatever, which can then disseminate these messages so that they can be decoded. And these are then decoded into various meaning structures through frameworks of knowledge that the people have their own structures of production, their own technical infrastructure, which then feeds back into the production system. Because we can't forget, producers are themselves people that are going to go home and listen to the news. They are going to consume their own media. So you have not really a proper distinction here between producers and consumers because the two fold into one another, where they are quite indistinguishable. And so each, the producers and the consumers, come with their own meaning structure. And they might overlap, but there might also be some difference here. There might be uh, disagreement between the two. And when he's putting forward this thesis, what he is he's, he's ascribing autonomy to the consumers, you know, from their own, they have their own history, and that own history is going to determine and the structures that they are immersed in and that they agree with, various ideologies they might uh, be a part of, they will determine how they decode a message. So it's not like the message is going to determine someone and the message, you know, people are just mindless automatons when they watch the television. They are going to decode that television and those images in a way that might not be intended. So he's trying to trouble the idea that people are just, I guess, mindless uh, couch potatoes in front of the television to say that there's a lot more to it than that. So, for example, he thinks about the Western, so the Western film genre, for pretty many of you probably know what that is, but the Western film genre probably taking place in the late 19th, probably early, maybe really early 20th century, 
this idea of cowboys and, um, you know, fighting against the law or, or whatever. He uses that example to say that maybe on first glance, that is a violent genre because there's a lot of violence in the Western. It's all about, you know, fighting the law, uh, shootouts and people dying and all that. But he wants to add, of course, that there are so many other codes and conventions conveyed through the Western. And quite simply, what the people are seeing when they watch the Western isn't violence literally. They are only seeing messages about violence and how it is being encoded and that they are therefore decoding. And so in the case of violence, we have to interrogate how it is being interpreted. So is it violent when it is a police officer exerting force against uh, these outlaws, like in the case of the cowboy against the, the police? Or is it violence when it is outlaws inflicting it against the police? So we have to begin to interrogate here how even the idea of violence, which might seem so easy for us to understand, how this idea about violence is determined by the location from which it is being exerted and against whom it is being exerted against in the televisual image. Now, in the case of the Western genre, it will often glorify a certain person. And this is often the person that will be the rugged uh, outlaw white guy who is, you know, fighting for good, maybe against a corrupt police force, whatever. And so the violence that they inflict upon others is not even seen as violence. So take any maybe a more recent film, for example, like um, um, or like a video game where video games are your character committing reprehensible violence against others indiscriminately. And it is only when that violence is turned back upon you that it becomes a nuisance, that it becomes recognized as violence or take any kind of narrative arc, not any, but many narrative arcs in, in uh, video games where when violence is inflicted against one of your uh, video game friends in the story is seen as being a lot more violent than the violence you commit against anybody else in the video game when you're just killing anyone, like any kind of, I don't know, Grand Theft Auto game or something where you where kill everyone, yet it is only a significant event to kill when it, happen, it happens against someone that you know or yourself. And so we must then interrogate this idea about violence being, you know, neutrally understood or properly understood. Now, despite this, within the televisual image and how, uh, how we are kind of motivated to think about violence, for example, violence or any kind of message in a certain way, there is a preferred reading. So when someone makes a film, makes a video game, makes a makes a, um, a television show, they want it to be interpreted in the way they intend it to be interpreted. This is the preferred meaning, which might not always happen. So in the preferred meaning, uh, they might have a story in which you kill or the hero kills many different people, but it isn't going to stop the narrative or to make the audience be sad about it until the violence is inflicted against the hero or against one of the hero's friends or whatever. But people might watch it and be disgusted at how the violence is naturalized or how the violence is made so common that it's just happening on such a massive scale throughout the course of the film and people become disgusted at it happening even when it is the hero inflicting the violence. So here there is a resistance to the preferred reading. So there's always going to be a little bit of a, a slippage. There's going to be 
a broken telephone effect occurring where the intended meaning won't necessarily be adopted by the audience. So this is where connotation comes into play. Whereas denotation is literally what is seen on the screen, if you're watching a film or television, that is literally what it is what is seen on the screen. How it is interpreted is how it is being connoted or how it is the uh, how the connotation of it is being interpreted. Whereas you can't interpret for Hall in the way that he's talking about here. You can't interpret what you're literally seeing. If you're watching a movie where there's uh, someone driving a car, there's someone driving a car in that scene and that's it. But how it necessarily makes someone feel, how they interpret the scene is going to be different from person to person. And that is the connotation. Now, if there is a, a problem or a misinterpretation, I'm just putting miss in brackets, but if there is two, if there are two people interpreting something in a different way, not the denotative thing, but the connotative one, the element of interpretation where two people might interpret a scene entirely differently, then we must look at the ways that codes and their relationship to the rules of social life, of history, of life situation, of economic and political power and ideology essentially motivate different people thinking about scenes, thinking about different moments in film or television in different ways. And so it is in the interest of producers to minimize this possibility. They want things to be as clear as humanly possible, which might explain why television shows, why uh, movies are, and I'm just going to generalize here, which is very bad, but are maybe getting more and more simple because they want to limit the possibility of two people having any kind of disagreement about how a film, how a scene, how anything should be interpreted. And with all this, it's important to note and stress that there is no proper way to understand a film or television or whatever. It is all going to be determined by one's history, one's cultural background, one's ethnic background, one's nationality, one's class are all going to have an effect on how and determine how someone determines or reads a film. And here he concludes by saying that there are three broad ways that a film or a televisual image can be interpreted. And there's either the dominant reading, so it is interpreted in the way that it was meant to be interpreted. There's a negotiated reading where some of it isn't accepted, other parts of it are kind of negotiated and and agreed with while some parts are you know not not agreed with and then there's an oppositional reading that flat out just opposes what is being uh, conveyed which is in itself kind of reductive that you fall into one of these three camps but in any case uh, that's more or less it what he gets us in this this short essay I hope that I was able to make it clear for anyone that might be struggling with this or curious about it and yeah if I excluded anything or got anything wrong i'd love to hear about it i you know i read all your comments i don't have the time to respond to all of them but if you like what i did you know like share subscribe leave five stars and uh yeah catch you next time take care